Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. My guest today, of whose existence I became aware in the unlikeliest of ways, is Professor Eric Lager. Professor Lager, a native of Chicago, Illinois, obtained degrees in history from the University of Florida and then Clemson University before pursuing and earning his PhD in that same subject from the University of Tennessee. Professor Lager specializes in and lectures on the history of antebellum America, the Civil War, and the state in which that war began, the Palmetto State, South Carolina, That's in right. which he and his family reside, and at whose famed Citadel University he currently teaches. Uh, whilst an undergraduate, perhaps frightened by the uncertain path down which a degree in history might lead him, Professor Lager completed a minor concentration in parks, recreation, and tourism, which, at last, serves as the unexpected link by which we've been joined. As it happens, Professor Lager is not only an historian, but an entrepreneur. He's the founder and operator of Charleston History Walk, a guided tour through that enchanted city, of which he has, as you'll soon realize, not only an historian's knowledge and a professional academic's interest and mastery, uh, but a resident's simple-hearted uh, fondness. Uh, my dear parents, who very seldom travel, embarked last summer on a long road trip from New Jersey down to Florida. Along the way, they stopped at Charleston and joined you on uh, one of your tours. That evening, they called me in rapturous delight. They absolutely loved every minute of your tour and thought that I, a layman, a student of history, could have talked with you uh, all day. And so with their endorsement, I reached out to you on your website, to which I'll include uh, a link in the show notes below, and I'm blessed now to have the opportunity to talk with you. If not for a day, then at least for a brief little while. So, uh, Professor Lager, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here. So I think we'll get right into it. I want to begin by reading a letter that was dispatched, but as circumstances would have it, undelivered to a one Robert Anderson, the U.S. Army major stationed at a tiny little island in Charleston Harbor by the name of Fort Sumter. Now, Major Anderson, now in early April 1861, found himself in a most unenviable position. Fort Sumter, the federal garrison to which he was forced to relocate his regiment, was, for all intents and purposes, under siege. Had he received the following letter from uh, the War Department in Washington, of which Simon Cameron was then the secretary, the heavy forebodings by which he was burdened might have been lifted. I read now the contents of that forgotten letter sent to him, and I'd like to hear your uh, response. Sir, he said, your letter of the first occasioned some anxiety to the president, the newly inaugurated President Lincoln. He had supposed you could hold out till the 15th without any great inconvenience and had prepared an expedition to relieve you before that period. Hoping still that you will be able to sustain yourself till the 11th or the 12th, 
the expedition will go forward and finding your American flag flying will attempt to provision you and in the case the effort is resisted will endeavor also to reinforce you. Professor Lager, if you would, I'd like for you to explain to us how did we get here? How did we arrive at this moment? Well, it's a great question. Um, it's a, uh, it wasn't uh, an immediate situation. This is something that had been brewing for a long time uh, in the Palmetto State. Uh, I'll say, first of all, that December 20th, 1860, when South Carolina seceded from the Union by a vote of 169 to zero in favor of secession, was not the first time South Carolina had tried to secede. They had tried to after the nullification crisis uh, in 1832. They tried again after the Compromise of 1850. They tried in 1852, but no other southern state would come along with South Carolina, and she didn't want to go it alone. And it's really uh, Lincoln's election in November of 1860 that's the straw that breaks the camel's back in this particular situation. Now, again, this had been brewing for a while, but you have uh, all sorts of crises following crises after the Mexican-American War ended in 1848. Um, and finally, you find yourself in 1860 with the election of the first Republican president. Um, how many South Carolinians voted for Lincoln? Uh, zero. He wasn't on the ballot down here in South Carolina. Um, at that time, uh, there was no such thing as a state-issued ballot. It was up to candidates' names to place tickets on, a can, on, a, on tickets and distribute those well. The Republican Party was uh, pledged to arrest the further expansion of slavery into the territories. That's not a popular position here in South Carolina. So there was no uh, Republican Party presence. So he wasn't seen as a legitimate president. And in response, uh, you have the secession convention that occurs in December 1860, and this time other southern states did come on board. And by February, you have the formation of the newly formed Confederate States of America that are in place. And just prior to that, a week after that ordinance of secession passed, Major Robert Anderson, who you were uh, referring to, was actually over in uh, Fort Moultrie, which is located on Sullivan's Island. That's the old Palmetto Log fort from the American Revolution had been turned into a brick and mortar fort. And he was concerned that his garrison was vulnerable, the South Carolina militia. So he moved his garrison a week after the ordinance of secession passed over to Fort Sumter, where he was a little bit more secure at the time. And uh, interestingly enough, the governor of South Carolina at the time, Francis Pickens, Governor Francis Pickens, he was under a lot of pressure to remove those federal soldiers immediately from Fort Sumter. Um, because South Carolina was claiming independence and honor is at stake. And uh, one individual in particular, Robert Barnwell Rett, who is sometimes called the father of secession, he had been preaching secession for 30 years from the editorial columns of his newspaper, the Charleston Mercury, was kind of screaming at Pickens to go storm the fort. And Pickens was getting kind of frustrated and said, you know, Mr. Rett, I can go ahead and get you a boat and some men and some guns, and you're welcome to go storm the fort if that's what you want to do. And Rhett says, well, sir, governor, I'm not a military man. And Pickens, who had been the minister to Russia during the 1850s, said, I'm not a military man either, so therefore I'm going to listen to my advisors. And the advice was keep a cool head for the moment. Uh, so uh, no action was taken. Now, if you talk to a Citadel cadet here at uh, the campus here, they'll be very clear to remind you that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, 
the Confederacy that fired the first shots on Fort Sumter on April 12, 1861. It was Citadel cadets that fired the first shot on January 9, 1861, when President James Buchanan had made a effort to resupply the fort in what was called the Star of the West. And uh, Citadel cadets fired on the Star of the West from Fort Johnson, which is on James Island. There's actually two forts that are overlooking Fort Sumter, Fort Moultrie on Sullivan's Island, and then Fort Johnson on James Island. And so that Star of the West uh, just turned right around and steamed back north. Uh, and that's where things stood in uh, March of 1861 when Lincoln took office. Lincoln had made a pledge to hold on to federal property, and that included Fort Sumter. And those men were about to be starved out. So he made the decision to resupply the fort. And that was unacceptable to the South. Uh, again, trying to impress Great Britain and France now. And sovereignty, honors at stake. So when it became clear Lincoln was serious, that momentous step was taken at 4.30 in the morning on April 12, 1861, when PGT, Pierre Gustave Toutant Beauregard, gave the command to open fire and the first shot of the Civil War was fired from Fort Johnson onto Fort Sumter. The first official shot. The first official shot. Yes, not if you talk to a Citadel cadet. But right, right. So these same students upon whom you are bestowing all of your wisdom are responsible, or at least their forebears are responsible for the first true shots of the of the Civil War. I think hmm. you, I think you can make a case that that was uh, indeed uh, the first shot of the Civil War. But you know, I think let's go with the standard history. Yeah. And now is that is that a legacy to which your your students firmly hold? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you the highest academic uh, scholarship that you can get here at the Citadel is called the Star of the West Scholarship. Oh. And so very good, very good. Uh, I, I that and that's a, a fascinating um, history and and very succinctly put forward. <laughs> I, yeah. I feel like I, I'll need to go back and listen to that and and re-listen to that time and again. Um, but you mentioned something right at the get-go, right at the start of that of that erudite explanation, uh, on which I want to focus a little bit more, and that is South Carolina's history of how shall we say naughtiness of of maybe uh, of right. mis of misbehavior from the federal government's perspective. Uh, to this is not exactly an historical question. Maybe in some ways it is, but. I ask you, to what do you attribute this uh, this penchant for resistance to to federal yeah. governmental decrees? Is, is something in the water down there in South yeah. Carolina? Yeah, you what would think so. It? It's, a, it's a question that historians have wrestled with. Um, I'm not going to uh, certainly encourage anybody to go out there and download my dissertation. And that's not, you might have, you know, it might be, it might work well for you if you're having trouble sleeping at night. And then read that and that'll help you. But this is the first thing I really address. Um, it's my first footnote and that footnote is about a page and a half long uh, referencing all of the works that have tried to sort out that question of why South Carolina was so extreme, unique, different, and most the most obvious word would be radical. Um, there's a great book out there by Lacey Ford Jr. called Origins of Southern Radicalism, and it's uh, about South Carolina in the upcountry, actually. 
they there's a lot of theories put forth. Uh, they've developed somewhat of an insular society that was kind of wasn't permeated uh, well by outside influences. Um, there is the proportion of slaveholders to non-slaveholders compared to other southern states, which definitely was the highest in South Carolina. Um, there's the fact that actually South Carolina was suffering economically. As we opened up the old Southwest, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, to short staple cotton uh, cultivation, South Carolina had an out-migration. So it's losing people. And of course, that means it's losing power in the House of Representatives. And um, there's a lot of uh, factors, both internal and external, that kind of come into play here. Um, there's no simple answer to it. Um, South Carolinians very zealously guarded their liberties. Um, they felt like they had been under threat multiple times. Uh, John C. Calhoun helped enunciate a lot of this uh, ideology during the nullification crisis. Um, going back to the 1820s, he did not get along very well with President Andrew Jackson. And uh, there is, uh, I think, a lot of concern here that South Carolina is uh, kind of being overwhelmed and surrounded by more powerful beings, both north and around them in the south as well. Now, the, the article that, that deals with this most relevantly is um, a guy named James Banner, B-A-N-N-E-R, and he titles this article literally, The Problem of South Carolina. Uh, and he deals with that uh, more directly. So um, it's not anything that could be answered directly in a couple of sentences. It's a lot of economic, social uh, circumstances. Certainly slavery is uh, among the top of those, but also um, economically as well, as South Carolina really began to fall behind. Um, it's grander, and the colonial period was kind of at an end by the late antebellum period. So um, they uh, they took the lead, and uh, this time they got others uh, around them to come on board. Yeah, and I think that's a, a better explanation than those um, that I've come up with. Uh, you know, just as a um, as a layman, sort of viewing South Carolina through history, um, it seems peculiar that so many extraordinary figures emerge from this one uh, refractory state. You mentioned Calhoun. You mentioned congressmen. Um, of which there are two predominantly that come to mind. Uh, um, I think of Preston Brooks and uh, a, a congressman and his his what is it, his uncle Andrew yeah. Butler. Andrew Butler. Yeah. So, yeah. so and, and Butler was the man for those of you listening upon whom one Charles Sumner of Massachusetts perhaps too liberally poured his invective and was thus uh, treated to a, a few. Um, quite unfriendly blows uh, on and about the body in the in the in the congressional chamber. So we right. witness all sort of right. congressional misbehavior nowadays with people standing up in the State of the Union and, and uh, denouncing uh, a president's words, perhaps. Well, but never, actually, never anything quite like this. So you, on my tour asked today about she asked she's like oh wow she, like you think the rhetoric is pretty bad nowadays in Congress? I'm like well certainly not compared to. 1850s, South Carolina, Preston Brooks was a congressman from Edgefield, South Carolina. Um, Edgefield has had a lot of governors. I might be uh, off on this, but I think 11 governors have been sent to the state house in Columbia from Edgefield. And um, they have a pension for, for some violence. Uh, probably more duels fought there uh, than anywhere else in the state. And Preston Brooks, uh, 
after listening to this speech, which was called the Crimes Against Kansas that Charles Sumner gave, walked up to him and said, sir, you've insulted my state, my family, our honor, and uh, began to beat him with a gutta bircha cane and uh, so badly bloodied that he couldn't return to the to the Senate floor for a couple of years, um, broke his cane over the poor man's head. And what did South Carolinians do? Well, they sent him new canes. And uh, after he resigned from office, he was then unanimously reelected to office. So certainly- uh, but, didn't, but didn't survive the ordeal by many years, if I'm not mistaken. No, he died quickly. He died a, a few years thereafter. Yeah, quickly right. after. I, I wonder, um, hidden away somewhere in either South Carolina or in the in the basement of our of our uh, Capitol building do the remnants of that cane exist do you know I don't know I don't know that I kind of doubt it would be my suspicion and if it was there uh, it's probably some sort of replica of sorts I, I I don't know actually I've never thought about that I don't suspect it is. Yeah, that would be quite an article to uh, yeah. have in one's possession. Yeah. Quite an article to have. Yeah. Um, so thank you so much for uh, for uh, expanding on that notion of South Carolina's um, sort of intuitive, natural. Um, let me uh, let me go ahead and tell you a little bit more about what's interesting. So you got this unique um, kind of ideology um, that that occurs. Uh, that results in secession, but um, I'll say that not long into the Civil War, uh, just eight months, in fact, November 1861, um, just to the south of Charleston, a very important port called Port Royal, which is present-day Hilton Head, South Carolina, that was captured by the Union in what was the largest amphibious in invasion in United States history in the 19th century, and captured, um, captured Hilton Head, and that inaugurated um, a period of intense, let's call it political experiments here in South Carolina, because it created a, what we're unfortunately familiar with right now in Eastern Europe, it created a refugee crisis in South Carolina. Hundreds of the most prominent families came pouring into Charleston. These were very wealthy families. And then on December 11th, 1861, a massive fire breaks, breaks out in Charleston. On December 11, 1861, destroys 540 uh, acres and about 575 buildings, $8 million worth of property damage. And this was a catastrophe on a scale that South Carolinians never envisioned when they voted to secede uh, eight months uh, prior, or at this point, 11 months prior. And what happens is the governor of South Carolina is, for all intents and purposes, removed. He is usurped from power, and you have this executive council that is formed consisting of five men each with a separate department that for all intents and purposes takes control of the state and that's really what my dissertation looked at was this south carolina executive council it's a fascinating story in which uh south carolina really overthrew their own constitution in order to get the state on a more solid war footing because things were not looking good and didn't go well uh, the first uh, year of the war. And this body um, really could do whatever it wanted to do. It could draw money from the public treasury without legislative authorization. It could impress supplies and um, it could confiscate private property deemed necessary for public use. And it created a firestorm of political controversy here in South Carolina, so much so that it was eventually dissolved 
at the end of 1862. But it's just kind of interesting that South Carolinians, they found themselves with this new government called the Executive Council. And a lot of South Carolinians were scratching their heads saying, hey, I thought we seceded here to protect constitutional government. Um, and yeah, almost as though they had transitioned from a state of um, enhanced liberties to one of uh, an impending despotism, exactly. a, martial, a martial despotism. Yeah, and newspaper editors really uh, launched a crusade against the executive council. I think probably some of the caricatures of it were a little unfair. I mean, these men were not strangers. They were James Chestnut Jr., for instance, was the head of the um, Department of the Military. He's the husband of the very famous diarist Mary Chestnut. And uh, in any case, uh, these men did what they were supposed to do. They put the state on a more permanent war footing. They created uh, saltpeter plantations. They constructed foundries that were building gun carriages. They beefed up all of the fortifications along the coastline. So they did what they were intended to do, but they had to take some pretty heavy handed measures to do it. And uh, that resulted in a very interesting and not well known political um, episode in South Carolina's Civil War history that really lasted throughout 1862. Sure, sure. Now you mentioned Mary Chestnut. She's someone to whom uh, Ken Burns in his famous and uh, laudable documentary, he yeah. makes uh, constant reference. But the, the point that you make is really interesting and really well taken is that there was a lot of internal strife within South Carolina, perhaps as uh, not unexpectedly um, surrounding the the alteration of their of their governmental structure in anticipation of this war and during the early stages of this war. Um, so yeah. that, that's something really to, to take into consideration. Well, um, it is. It is a lot of internal strife, a lot of internal disagreement over how the state should be Governed and South Carolina, for all its sectional troubles with the rest of the country, has had plenty of sectional troubles within itself. You have really three geographic um, areas of South Carolina, the Low Country, which which is where I'm at down in Charleston, uh, but then you have the Midlands and then you have the Up Country. Well, these are areas of the country that have different interests, different economies, and different histories to some extent. And the Upstate and the Low Country has been at each other's throats throughout the state's history as well. Yeah, as is always the case in any state, large or small, in any country. I think of right. the Italian North being at in opposition to the, the Italian South, and the same thing persists in all, in all times and in all places. So we're coming uh, toward the end of our conversation. I wanted to ask you two more questions. Sure. Um, one is about President Buchanan's lame duck period. I think um, his lame duck period is overlooked. <laughs> uh, and I find this part of his history and our American history history to, to be one um, uh, that we should take uh, a harder look at. So before the ratification of the 20th Amendment uh, to the Constitution in 1933, of course, the president-elect would have to wait until the 4th of March to be sworn into office. That's when Lincoln would be sworn in. Um, the election, of course, was held in, in November, the first Tuesday of November of that uh, prior year. So in a time of peace, uh, this interregnum it was generally expected to be on the whole uneventful, right? The departing right. president would enter upon a new inglorious life as a lame duck, uh, as the Congress would usually try and fail to pass, uh, pass through last ditch bills and, and laws. So right. the, the winter of 1860 to 1861, this lame duck period for President Buchanan 
was anything but boring in the traditional sense. So tell us, uh, you've mentioned a few of the events already, but yeah, sort of the highlights of that tumultuous period of time. Um, well, I think that, you know, Buchanan has his hands full um, here. He does know he's on his way out of office, but he also has a pledge to uphold the Constitution. Um, he's in a tricky position. He is declaring that secession is illegal um, on the one hand, but he doesn't want to instigate something that's going to trigger a war either. Uh, I will say this. I think that the there is a lot more diplomacy going on between the United States and the Confederate States than what we know, know from just general histories. Um, there's a great book out there called um, South Carolina Goes to War, written by a man named Charles Cawthon, old book, 1950, but he probably does better than anyone else in a chapter called Forts Diplomacy. I mean, there are messengers, there are uh, representatives being sent from South Carolina, from the Confederates. They are meeting with Buchanan. They are meeting well into even after Lincoln comes into office. So this doesn't happen out of nowhere. I think that Buchanan's also got concerns because there are other federal installations that are being seized. There's arsenals, there's gunpowder magazines that are being um, seized by Southern militias. Um, you have um, Fort Pickens down in Pensacola, for instance. Um, but forts all up and down the eastern United States um, are coming into possession of southern militias and um, Confederate forces. So Buchanan can't really be strong everywhere at once. And so um, the pinnacle of focus really zeroes in on Charleston, and perhaps understandably so. But there's a lot of things that, that Buchanan is trying to juggle. Um, he has kind of had a pretty poor evaluation by historians over the years. And um, I think do that- think, Do you think that assessment is unmerited? Do you think we should re-examine our, uh, well, our, our image of Buchanan? I wouldn't necessarily go and lavish a bunch of praise uh, on him. Um, I think that if you're, a if you're looking at it from a practical standpoint, there wasn't necessarily a lot he could have done to arrest this situation. Um, you know, you have the Montgomery Convention that forms in Alabama in February, and for all intents and purposes, the South had declared a new nation. They had written a constitution. They had elected Jefferson Davis as provisional president of the Confederacy. Um, so I don't think there was a lot of options necessarily for Buchanan. Um, you probably weren't going to have a whole lot of luck coercing the South back into the Union. Lincoln certainly didn't have any luck at doing that either. So yeah, I don't think it's a bad idea to kind of reassess or at least kind of it, it, it acknowledge that this was a complicated situation and that he was indeed in negotiations and trying to sort out the problems. And he did, after all, send Star of the West down to resupply the, the Fort Sumter. Um, whether or not he should have, in the aftermath, declared a rebellion in order after the Star of the Cadet or the Star of the West was fired on is maybe an interesting point, but I don't necessarily know if, if, if he was quite ready yet at that point uh, for a war to ensue as a result of just merely firing on a uh, supply ship. I wonder if there's something almost literary and cosmic and poetic about 
his sending a ship by the name of the Star of the West, given the fact that later in the war, of course, we have the likes of Grant and Sherman, both residents oh. of the West, coming in and uh, basically saving the Union. Uh, yeah. Just an aside, uh, just something... That's uh, a very interesting, I've never made that. Comes to mind, yeah. Almost well, I think a lot of historians would argue that the war, ultimately, the Civil War, was won in the West. That perhaps we should maybe lay off a little bit of attention to the to the Eastern theater, which of course was critical. But there's no question that the river systems, uh, which run largely north to south in the West, were great avenues of invasion for the Union to penetrate with their brown water navy, freshwater navy, um, and secure those inland waterways and slowly but surely penetrate into the Confederate heartland. Hmm. Yeah, I think the the contributions of Westerners and the Western expanse is probably neglected. And of course, the, the whole the point of the Civil War was, or at least one of the major points, was that we were um, arguing over the expansion of slavery into the Western territories. Right, right, right. right. So I, I want I want to pose to you a hypothetical. Okay. Okay. So imagine you had the ability to travel back in time. Indeed, imagine you were, as you are now, a learned man who departed the free state of Illinois uh, for the slave state of South Carolina. So in the election of 1860, there were, of course, four candidates for whom you could right. have voted, right? Yeah. Lincoln, of course, Douglas, the yeah. Northern Democrat, Breckinridge, and Bell. So yeah. we, all, we all like to think that had we been in that time at that place, we Lincoln would have been our natural selection, right? But I think, uh, honest, I mean, this is self-flattery, historical self-flattery. Um, he received, of course, a, a minority of the popular vote. So um, you can you can be a Lincoln man, but just because you have this uh, unique perspective as a northerner who's resettled in the South, um, tell me, for whom might you have voted? <laughs> and if not that, Tell us at least what were some of the rationales for voting for someone other than Lincoln? Well, <laughs> you know, John Bell Hood is an interesting, um, interesting candidate, right? He, under, he, he runs under what's called the Constitutional Union Party. That's kind of vague. Uh, it basically says, let's follow the Constitution. Well, of course, there's disagreements. Uh, on how to interpret the Constitution. Um, Douglas um, had really, maybe not, of course, um, <laughs> on purpose, but he kind of finagled this crisis to sort of arise with his Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. He wants to build a transcontinental railroad. He would like to, to begin in Chicago, which also happens to be where he's from. Uh, Southerners want a transcontinental railroad too. They want it to begin in New Orleans. So, uh, and that, by doing that, that really opened up a whole can of worms because it opened up that Kansas, Nebraska territory to popular sovereignty, which sounds all nice and cozy. Uh, the people will get to decide for themselves. Well, of course, you have fraudulent election, elections, people rushing in to try to take control of these territorial legislatures. Um, so, I don't know, he probably wouldn't have been a good pick. Um, now, it's funny that. The Democratic Convention was held in Charleston in 1860, um, April of 1860. After 57 ballots, they couldn't agree on a candidate, and that's that split the the party into two. Um, so I I don't know if I would have voted for 
uh, John Bell Hood. I, you know, there was a there was a compromise called the Crediting Compromise that was offered that was trying to sort this out. And um, you know, I think the fact is, by this point, we had had oh a solid 10, 12 years of sectional tension. It seems both sides are kind of itching for a, a fight at this point. I always pose this question to my students uh, when we talk about um, secession. And I say, you know, the North had just gotten 40, 50 years of this sectional antagonism from the South. Why not just let the South go? Why not just say good riddance, um, go ahead, self-government? Well, there are certainly always some economics that come into play, but it's more than that. It's this idea that this great experiment in democracy might fail. Um, this whole idea of Republican government, not the party, but representative government, constitutional procedure, uh, elections. I mean, this was a legitimate election. Um, it was a legal one. And the idea that majority rule could be overturned by a sectional minority, um, that's really why the North and many folks, I mean, everyone's got different reasons for fighting and probably a lot of them aren't giving that much philosophical thought to it. But the idea that we don't want to end up like Europe in a bunch of confederated broken states that's constantly at war, of course, which England and France were throughout the entire 18th century, um, I think is what kind of, you know, made Lincoln sort of stand out uh, and and become a, a man that stood for representative government and democracy. Although, of course, there's plenty of historians and rightfully could point to uh, the very unconstitutional nature of some of his uh, governance during the war itself, too. Yes, of course, the immediate suspension of the writ of habeas corpus and uh, and, and similar uh, <laughs> right. unconstitutional measures that had to be taken or at least justified by uh, by a time of war. Um, so yes, of course, I mean, it was our founders' dream and, and their intention to have an indissoluble union. And that's something to which Lincoln hearkened and, and um, tried to uphold through the course of his, his A fascinating time period. It's really the crossroads uh, of America. Uh, and that really helped us uh, to become uh, who we are in the end. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And who we're becoming. Um, yeah. So I want to end with one question. It's a personal okay. So as I mentioned, you're from Chicago, Illinois. Right. The land of Lincoln. Yeah. You're now a resident of and an expert on Charleston, South Carolina, the city with which Lincoln had the most trouble. Right. So how do you reconcile the Lincolnian prejudices of your birth and your rearing with your current immersion in all that is Charleston, South Carolina? Is there some internal conflict that <laughs> overwhelms you every single day that you wake up in that um, balmy southern climb? Oh, I don't think so, to be honest. Uh, I, um, you know, I grew up fond of Lincoln. I was a school kid. We went to uh, Springfield, and I remember seeing Lincoln's tomb from a very young age. Um, so, I, you know, my interest in South Carolina, well, I got interested in this really in high school. I started doing some Civil War reenacting. And they always had more Northern reenactors than Southern. And so I thought they even it up a little bit, I would do South. And I actually did a, a infantry regiment out of Tennessee, 154th Tennessee. And that kind of, you know, got me interested as I grew a little older. I'm like, oh, well, this was a separate country. Um, how did they have 
a government? Did they have a Senate, a House, the president? How did all that work out? So that really brought me into um, my interest in, in the Confederate government. And when I went to Clemson for my master's degree, I told my advisor, I'm like, I'd like to write a thesis on the Confederate Congress. He said, Eric, that's way too big of a topic. Find something smaller. So that led me to the secession convention, uh, which eventually led me to the state legislature. And that I expanded on during my dissertation, which was really a study of the state government from 1861 to 1862. Um, so I've become pretty immersed in South Carolina history. Uh, I find the people down here perfectly friendly. Um, they're very welcoming and um, it's a great place uh, to live because I'm surrounded by history. Uh, everywhere you look, uh, you got something historical to take a look at. Um, so I can reconcile Lincoln with where I'm at now pretty well. I've always tried to, uh, you know, as far as Southerners go and the Confederacy, I think people need to remember that Southerners are the only Americans up until the Vietnam War that had ever lost a war. Um, and there was a lot of sacrifice. Almost a quarter of the population in South Carolina was either dead or wounded in the, in, in the prime of their life. And that meant there were a lot of mothers, widows, and daughters around. And so um, I think it makes sense to me that, that people would want to look back and, and try to um, not necessarily glorify, but at least honor uh, what their ancestors had fought for. And, you know, the idea, of course, that people ought to have the same values we have today that lived back then is probably not uh, fair. Uh, it's fair to criticize perhaps what they stood for, but uh, to remember that there are imperfect beings and, uh, you know, this is uh, that's just human nature um, to make mistakes. And I think we ought to learn from those and, uh, and honor the past as best we can uh, while being respectable of, um, you know, things that might be, um, hurtful to some people today. It's an interesting time period to look at and kind of difficult to balance, but it ought to be done. Yeah, had we the time, that's exactly the direction down which I wanted to go. I, I would have talked about the legacy of the Civil War, um, uh, the, the conflict we see today about statuary, for instance. Uh, right. Do we keep them up? Do we, do we um, uphold them not as moral exemplars, but as testaments to a history? right? Or, or do we take them down and do we replace would, them? Yeah. Um, it's a complicated question. Um, everyone is going to have different answers. I think uh, probably the short answer is that it might be best to learn from those mistakes rather than tearing everything down because then there's nothing to look at. So how do you remember that past and, and not follow uh, those mistakes uh, that people had made before us? Um, so, and, and learn from them. Uh, so, fortunately, in Charleston, um, in general, uh, we've lost a, Cal a statue of Calhoun, but in general, what we're doing is something a little different. Rather than tearing everything down, we're actually putting up new monuments to the people that have not been as well represented in the past. And so we're trying to spread our net a little wider and, and have monuments and signs and historical markers to a little bit broader cross-section. Yeah, and I think that's a perfectly legitimate and universally agreeable approach to this very sensitive topic. Right. But I agree with you. There should not be necessarily a glorification of these men, especially Calhoun, the, the sure. intellectual force behind the secession and, and right. uh, its, of, its, of, its, um, of its outcomes, but an education, right? Uh, right. Perspective in, in their time and in their place. 
um, and it certainly helps as a as a tour guide, <laughs> as someone well, describing well, this country. And these men are a complicated figure. Um, I worked at the Andrew Jackson papers up in Knoxville, and Calhoun, of course, was his vice president. Every time I thought I started to understand Calhoun, he threw me for a loop. He's an important political thinker, though, um, and uh, his disquisition on government, I think, is important reading, and uh, it says a lot about the nature of federalism and uh, and and uh, control and governance. Yeah, no, he wasn't a, a second-tier thinker. He was no. he he was quite a quite an astute observer of things political, um, a, a philosopher in his own right. He may right. have come to conclusions with which we right. disagree sure. or sure. Uh, against which we recoil, but right. not lacking in, in intellectual power. That's, that's right. for certain. Um, so uh, we're a little over time. I'll just ask you one, one final thing. Do you have any book recommendations that our audience can read? They can be sort of rudimentary that you might give to a to a like a first year freshman at the citadel or perhaps a little bit more advanced regarding the civil war specifically or or maybe the the antebellum time period well um if you want to south carolina um in general there's a lot out there um i'd probably direct you towards my my bibliography of which it's about 25 pages um but you know i do think uh charles coffin South Carolina Goes to War is an outstanding uh, book on South Carolina's Civil War history. Um, there's a great book out there called Charleston, Charleston, which is just a general history of, of it's a history of a southern city. And that's very comprehensive in its nature. That would give you a good overview of all of uh, Charleston's history, really from its founding up until the late 90s uh, or so. Um, there's a last name Rosen that writes a short history of Charleston, which might be more appealing for those that don't want a three or 400 page book on the city's history. Um, and, uh, there's a, you know, an interesting book on antebellum South Carolina is called, uh, Stephanie McCurry masters of small worlds. And that's actually, we kind of think of South Carolina as these huge wealthy, uh, plantation owners, uh, rice barons. And that's true, but there were a lot of yeomen families and she's written about yeoman farmers and their political culture and ideology um, along with Lacey Ford's uh, Origins of Southern Radicalism. So those are all good books. One of my favorite books um, on the Civil War in general is uh, written by a professor emeritus now at University of Alabama, George Rabel, and his book, uh, The Confederate Republic, A Revolution Against Politics, is probably the primary book that got me interested in this um, area of specialization. Excellent. And I'll be sure to include links to all of these books below. I just finished one. If I can make one contribution to your excellent list and thorough list of, of books, I just read a work by Lord Charnwood, who was a, a, a British historian who lived, I think he was actually born the year that the Civil War died. I think he was born in 1865. And his work was extraordinary. So I'll include maybe a link to that as well. Yeah. I, I mention it only because it, it really was was excellent, um, and I love the way in which he he wrote his work. It was it was very very enjoyable. Um, so with that, uh, Eric Professor Lager, thank you so much for being so immensely generous with your time. Oh, I'll my include, pleasure. I'll include a link to your to your business to your tour yeah. um, in the yeah. show notes below. Although it does sound like you're 
you're quite <laughs> you're yeah, let's pick it up. But I, I offer a nice little walking tour it's two and a half hours which is a half hour longer than most in town and i'd say the you know the nice thing that i do is 10 or less people um i don't take any more than 10 and the city allows up to 20 which is my opinion is too many for a walking tour but it gives you a nice we cover from the city's founding uh in 1670 i actually go back to the english civil war and the Charles the first who lost his head all the way up to uh, the, the city's mo or the tours mostly colonial and and antebellum and civil war but I, I get into some 20th century stuff as well but yeah I'd love for somebody to come and uh, come join me on a walking tour including yourself Daniel. of course I look forward to it and as I said my parents were absolutely enamored of it they um, it was their favorite part I think of uh, of of South Carolina of Charleston specifically they they absolutely were delighted by you and by the tour and by the city uh, of which you are so um, capable a representative uh, so is there any other platform on which people can reach you are you on Twitter or Instagram or oh I'm on Instagram? all those things yeah you can find me Charleston History Watch just don't expect a lot of posts I don't do a whole lot with that um you might need a social media manager once you i might i might i might i might need to do a little bit more on that front but uh i i think that i'm getting uh I, i'm getting the business i need from my reviews and uh, people are very generous to do that so um i'll suppose maybe i'll start doing a little bit more posting i'm on t i'm on twitter i'm on instagram as well as facebook charleston history walk very good so again those are all platforms and uh, sites to which I'll include links and of course you have my and my family's exuberant endorsement of you know if you're in Charleston especially as the weather gets a little bit nicer we enter the springtime please check out Professor Lager's um, his, his guided tour throughout Charleston I think you'll have a great time so with that again I extend to you my thanks Professor Lager you've been so generous with uh, your time in delivering to us your wealth of information I wish that we could talk uh, much longer about this fascinating <laughs> subject area. Um, but well, it's my pleasure. I appreciate you having me on. This was okay. very well done, and uh, I wish you luck. You're doing a good thing. Thank you so very much. Uh, well, with excellent guests like you, I think my role is quite quite small. I just need to listen and <laughs> uh, um, broadcast exactly what it is that you have to say. Um, so with that, I wish everyone farewell and good night from Finneran's Wake. Oh, Daniel. 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 Daniel.